This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have a special episode. We have uh, some of the industry's top analysts from the Credit Intel team. Um, We have Jim Rice, Seema Shah, and Michael Blackburn here. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Um, So for everybody who's out there who might not know you, why don't you all uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves? Seema, who is Seema Shah? <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me. So I joined Credit Intel about six months ago, uh, where I cover some of the distressed names and home furnishings and apparel. Uh, prior to joining here, I was an equity analyst for about 20 years covering the retail and consumer space uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence Research Platform and also at a couple of investment firms, uh, hedge funds, and family offices. And so I'm excited to be here to join you today. Great. Jim, who's Jim Rice? Okay, I'm formerly of the Boston Red Sox. That's the other Jim Rice. Um, (laughs) I've been with Credit Intel for 13 years. Um, Been covering retail for over 40 years, uh, believe it or not. Um, I've been covering um, department stores, I guess, Distressed department stores would be a redundancy, right? Um, and some of the uh, distressed uh, apparel retailers. Got Pre- it. Previous to Credit Intel, I was with uh, Susquehanna on, on the uh, sell side and worked in factoring and uh, also another agency, a competitor of Credit Intel. So. Got it. And, and Michael, who's Michael Blackburn? Uh, well, I've been with Credit Intel F&D reports for about 20 years now, uh, monitoring primarily the grocery and drug space, as well as the sporting good retailers. Prior to that, I was in corporate finance, working in treasury, capital markets, risk management, those types of roles. Awesome. And we also have Josh Suffin on the line. Uh, for anyone who is interested in the Credit Intel services, uh, please go to the Credit Intel website and you can find Josh there and he will be more than happy to discuss with you what uh, Credit Intel has to offer. And so that, that leads me in. Can, can you, somebody on the, the panel, uh, give me an overview of what Credit Intel uh, is and what you guys do? Sure. I'll jump yeah. in on this one. Go yeah, for um, Josh. Cool. So at Credit Intel, we monitor the financial health of retailers. Uh, so we have three of our analysts on the call today, but we have a team of 20 analysts who all monitor, again, the financial health of retailers, looking at both public and private companies and updating all of our subscribers on what's going on with these companies every single day. Uh, and our whole goal is to really be an extension of your team. You get to speak with our analysts and find out all this amazing intelligence that we have. I'll add, you know, the, the thing that I think – Credit Intel does uh, amazing is the customer service. You know, for those who are subscribers know that when you click on a, a retailer, you can see the analyst, you can click a link that can send an email directly to that analyst. They are extremely prompt in answering questions. And if you can't get them that way, which never happens, you can also pick up the phone and call them and they will, you know, be uh, very responsive. And it's one of my favorite parts of Credit Intel. I can tell you without that extreme service, 
for me, it would be less impactful. And so I really appreciate about that culture that uh, Credit Intel has. And, you know, for those who are lazy like me, uh, at the moment, if you need something, you can text Josh and he makes it happen. So uh, I do that uh, probably all too often. (laughs) That's what we're here for. We love it. (laughs) So, um, you know, Seema, I think we'll start with you. You're the, you're the newest to the credit Intel team. uh, And, you know, because there's nothing crazy (laughs) or interesting happening with retail today, but you know, given that, why don't you tell us, you know, what's going on? What's the real state of retail today? Well, the real state of retail at this moment is, uh, let's just say it's volatile. I think that's a good way uh, to start right now. So I guess prior to where we are at this moment, retailers were already facing um, different issues depending on how their omni-channel, competitive issues uh, in many cases. But as we went into the COVID situation, retailers were faced with the unprecedented closure of most of their stores, if not unless they were essential retailers. And what you saw there was that those who had invested in Omnichannel and had an online presence still able to service their customers. And to me, that was the big differentiator between who uh, has done better in this period and uh, who might be struggling. And as we are starting to reopen, uh, we'll continue to see where the customer is and how they're feeling about returning to stores or I think where we'll continue to see online strength. Um, so that's why I think the broader retail space is the consumer, I think, is mixed given the unemployment rates um, and some of the pressure that some of the population uh, was feeling uh, prior to this uh, COVID situation. So I think as we exit from this, you'll continue to see the mass merchants and uh, continue to be one of the dominating uh, players uh, going forward. Michael, what's your take? What's the real state of retail today? Yeah, yeah I mean... As building on what Seema just said, um, multi-channel is really the the top of, I think, most retail right now. Um, It's less stores, but not storeless. I mean, as we saw throughout this COVID period, the preferred method of online digital sales was curbside pickup. So you still need that brick and mortar space. Um, So there's going to be more growth than just pure e-com. The other trend is the the nesting, you know, the... um, we have an economy built on consumption and the consumer afraid to shop. So again, that's pushing more and more of this revenue towards the digital channels. Um, the other thing that we're starting to see and whether this turns out to be just a, a fad or a real trend is uh, the de-densification. Um, you know, people now are like, do I want to be in a city or do I want to move out to the suburbs? Um, also that de-densification in terms of the malls, that's going to be difficult for them to come back. People don't really want to go back into a, a closed, confined space. So if you're a strip mall retailer, that's going to be an advantage. So, you know, a company like Kohl's, which obviously like the rest of the apparel players and most of their stores closed, maybe they are in a slightly better position uh, from that perspective. Um, the other major trend is going to be value. You know, if you go back to 9-11, you go back to the Great Recession, value was key uh, coming out of both of those uh, down cycles. Um, And that is going to continue to, I think, play going forward. Got it. Jim, anything to add? Yeah, well, uh, working off what Mike just said, because I I cover the off-price retailers. So they got hit pretty hard in Q1 because they generally don't have a web presence or very small web presence. Ross doesn't have a website. Burlington's getting rid of their website. And TJX is it's only 2% of sales. It's more of a convenience. So obviously they didn't have any online sales during the quarter, but the, the proposition, uh, the value proposition remains. And we've seen where they've had um, tremendous sales since stores have opened. Um, both Burlington and, and uh, TJX reported positive comps and it was, it was a small sample size and a small amount of time but uh, positive comps um, in the stores that had opened. So I think for the off-price retailers, um, especially with the amount of merchandise that's gonna be out there for them, um, they're gonna be one of the winners of the, uh, of the pandemic uh, once, once this is, all the dust settles here. So, 
So uh, appreciate that color on the, the, the general overview. And, and so Jim, you know, you, you cover off price in department stores and on some level, do the, do the off price retailers need the department stores to exist because their value proposition is, you know, based on the fact that they're, you know, they're, they're more cost effective than the department stores. If they, does that hurt them? And then is there a lack of product if there's less and less department stores over the long haul? That's, that's a great question. Um, and, and ultimately I, I think they like having department stores around. Um, and it, it came up with a Phillips Van Usen, which is a client of ours, um, vis-a-vis Macy's. So um, their, their CEO was on uh, CNBC and was talking basically about that and saying that, you know, selling to the off-price retailers is not a great business model for them, that they need department stores. Um, you know, that's, that's where they're selling the full price. That's what they're selling, you know, their best products. Um, so, I, th- I think there's a, a kind of a symbiotic relationship maybe between the two. I mean, they keep grabbing market share. Um, you know, Macy's is, is trying to fight it with, you know, with their own off-price um, uh, brand. But um, I, I, think, I think ultimately, you know, department stores um, help off-price retailers. And so are they, the, the department stores, this amount of product that's going to be available uh, to off price um, is the abundance of inventory better or worse for, for the off price retailers. It's, it's better because they, you know, they can pick and choose, you know, which brands, the better brands they want. And it's going to be interesting because some, some vendors are talking about doing pack and hold themselves uh, you know, for non-fashion forward merchandise, um, because, you know, basically they have three choices with the merchandise. It's either, um, you know, market down significantly to their normal uh, distribution channel, like maybe department stores, try and sell it to off-price retailers or, or try to do pack and hold themselves if they can for the next season. You know, so there's, there's a lot of um, people looking for warehouse space and it's kind of uh, unclear, you know, which way it's going to go at this point. But uh, that, that's a big question for vendors, you know, what to do with this merchandise. Um, that's, you know, that's out of date already, pretty much. Interesting. You, you know, Michael, you had touched on the acceleration to online and the, uh, the curbside pickup. You know, one of the things that I, I keep pointing out in that is concerning is, and I'm wondering how it affects both retailers and the consumer is the acceleration of online um, just means that retailers are now selling more in a channel that's not profitable. And so how, how do you know, the I'm hopeful and I, it seems to be the case that curbside pickup might be the last mile. That might be the answer. I don't know if uh, it, it, it truly will be, but I, I believe that um, curbside pickup has proven to be uh, convenient to the consumer. The consumer wants it and that the it, it might be the last mile. And um, that would be good. But if it's not, um, you know, all these retailers have accelerated online in, in a business that's not, that's not profitable. And so either that, that cost gets pushed to the consumer. And I think if we have an economic downturn, that's not going to play out well for the retailer. Um, there's no doubt the consumer wants convenience and they want it now, but uh, from the business side, we, we haven't figured out how to do that profitably. And so how does that play out? Right. Yeah. So pretty much across the board, it's very little, if any, profit in online uh, revenues. You have additional costs. If you take the grocery sector where you might have a 5 or 6% EBITDA margin, it's razor thin. Um, and now you have the added cost of an employee going and picking and packaging and then holding and bringing it out, um, as well as the additional costs. I think the trend is, and again, looking at the grocery space, 
the focus has been investment, automation, robotics, and that's that's really the only answer to this uh, puzzle is you need to automate more. Um, that's going to improve your accuracy. It's going to reduce your costs, reduce your um, shrink, um, and, and improve your pick accuracy as well in terms of getting the right merchandise into your stores. Um, so that's really going to be the key. And there's in, in going again to the grocery space, there's somewhat of a, um, not a real battle, but uh, an, a, not a consensus yet on how that's going to move in terms of, is it going to be, you know, the Albertsons, Wakefern, Ahold's focus, which is more micro-fulfillment, these smaller, less capital-intensive uh, distribution centers that might be 40, 50,000 square feet or less, or even actually the 15 to 20,000 square feet versus the large uh, Okada style that Kroger has made a big investment for, which are costing $50 million plus and take a year or so to ramp up. Um, so I think what it may end up being is, is kind of a, a spoken hub type of strategy. We have the large distribution centers, the Okada facilities and the smaller micro fulfillment kind of surrounding those to fi- provide fill-in um, uh, for, for the, the relative customers in the different markets. So Are those yeah, micro fulfillment not, centers stores. The uh, micro fulfillment, not stores, but they're going to be fulfilling the orders. Got right. It. So then they could ship them to the stores or, you know, there is a question, you know, do you even just go to the micro fulfillment center and pick up your order there? Um, that hasn't been happening yet, but you know, there's going to, there's going to need to be some changes as well in terms of the brick and mortar space to deal with this as well. I mean, you need to change the, the store format, the parking lots, create a better system so there's not people waiting in cars. Um, and ultimately, you know, we saw a big ramp up, right, in grocery again. Um, about a third of households are now using some type of digital online ordering. That's up from about 15% just last summer. So it's a been a big shift. The grocery space wasn't ready for that. We've seen a lot of issues in their ability to, to handle that. They don't have the capacity yet to deal with that looking at Ahold and their Peapod service, there, there was wait times of up to two weeks to get your groceries delivered. So, you know, were customers satisfied with that experience and will they go back to it once they feel comfortable shopping again? Um, that's when you a say, question mark. I don't know if you, you, you're able to, you know, unpack the numbers these way, this way, but you said, so 33% digitally, uh, you know, of that 33%, what percentage do you think was fulfilled at the store versus delivered direct to home? The majority of it was at, at store. I mean, I think going into this, it was a rough estimate of maybe up to 40, 50% was pure delivery. And most of that is, is being handled by you know, Instacart, which is a third party. I mean, that's not really a long-term solution either because you're handing over all that data to a third party uh, potential competitor. You really want to keep that data in-house. Um, so I think what's different for non-food is one that there's not a perishable factor to it. But you are seeing in many cases a store in some capacity, either through curbside, buy online pickup in store, or also ship from store. Um, and then retailers are working with their vendors to d- do direct ship. And these type of fulfillment options significantly improve digital sales and it gets just more traffic within the store, which is a key component of what retailers have been trying to do. Uh, going forward. Given the the challenge to profitability without a store, the digitally native brands that don't have stores, you know, going into this unprofitable, going into COVID-19 unprofitable, and now positioning into a potential economic downturn, what uh, what is the fate of the digitally native brands that, that do not have a store presence, you know, outside of Amazon. For digitally native brands, you see that they are able to uh, garner the attention and traffic of typically younger consumers. Um, they tend to be more relevant. So what you're seeing with those type of brands after they build some scale online, is either to open a few select stores themselves or partner with existing brick and mortar retailers. So you see that with Beauty, uh, with Ulta and Sephora, Previously, we saw that with Casper, who had a relationship with Target. So that way, they're able to leverage the the store of a partner. And for the partner, it helps them to be able to drive traffic of potentially a different consumer 
um, than their normal demographic. So that's what we had seen historically or pop-up stores, which is another short-term way to, it's like marketing, but also able to get people to be aware of your brand and to come in and check out things. That kind of defeats the whole direct to consumer. If now these digitally native brands who are these DTC are now wholesaling their goods into target and other places, is that a different business model? It's a slightly different business model, but I think majority of those retailers still have their sales coming from the online. So in many cases, to me, it's it's the, the marketing, it's a way to market your product to a consumer base that you don't have either, right? Because the target consumer may not be the same as the typical Casper consumer, for example. Is, are, are those digitally native brands do, do if, if we do actually hit an economic downturn and unemployment the way it mm-hmm. is, and it's hard, it's, it's challenging to be profitable online only, are, are they in trouble? Um, I would say, Yes, broadly speaking, just because the nature of their business model is to spend most of their SGNA either on employees or marketing and shipping. And so if you're not able to have the top line growth at a sustainable high level, you're going to be spending more uh, than you're making. So I think you'll see some risk to those businesses in a downturn. I ask because in headline news, we read about some of the bankruptcy risks on the the, the Tuesday mornings and the JC pennies of the world. But I, I, I don't read about any of these digitally native brands, these DTC brands that were unprofitable going into this. And I'm, I keep, I keep wondering, you know, what, what's going to happen? You know, they were unprofitable going into this and now there is this, you know, potential economic downturn, these changing consumer behavior. I would think that there is some risk there. Uh, I would agree with that uh, completely. I'll let somebody else uh, jump in, but you do see, I think what you're saying is correct. And you've seen some of the larger retailers that have acquired the online brands like um, Bed Bath and Beyond had uh, acquired One Kings Lane and Walmart acquired ModCloth and other things. They may have been able to get some technology out of it, but even with the infrastructure of a larger established brick and mortar retailer, they tended to be unprofitable and ended up being closed or sold. So I think that you're right in that respect. And I'll let Jim or anyone else comment. No, I just think the pre-COVID-19 consensus was kind of, you had to be an omni-channel retailer. You couldn't be brick and mortar alone and you couldn't be digital alone. You, you had to have all these different channels and probably even more so post-COVID-19. Got it. I, I think that, you know, that sums it up pretty well. And so, um, you know, Seema, you were talking about the, the non-grocery and how, and the acceleration of online and non-grocery. And we were talking, mm-hmm. you know, I had mentioned the, you know, and I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the curbside pickup is the last mile. Uh, how, how did mm-hmm. that, how's that playing out in the non-grocery world? Um, I think it's actually been quite successful. So prior to COVID there were some of the more established big box retailers who uh, were off mall or in their own strip center had already started to implement curbside pickup because um, it was an added convenience for their consumer. And it was sort of an, an extension of the service of Bopis by online pickup and store. So uh, what you saw already was that in many cases for retailers across the spectrum from tractor supply to, you know, Home Depot and even some of the other ones like Best Buy, you saw that 70 to 80% of their online orders were already being picked up or fulfilled somehow through their store. So either through uh, customer pickup or through ship from store. So what happened was during the COVID situation when people wanted contactless pickup or fulfillment, this sort of accelerated that movement to curbside pickup. And I think in many cases, um, it's been quite successful. It's definitely more, uh, more profitable for the retailer and it's an added convenience for more consumers and it's less costly for them too, to the extent that shipping is still uh, a cost that a consumer has to bear. So I think it is pretty close to the last mile. People, there'll always be a portion of consumers who want the package set straight to their home. Um, But as you get more fulfillment from stores, that is a cheaper uh, 
I guess, delivery costs, mailing from a local store. Um, and also retailers can partner with their vendors to ship directly. So, But as you move toward uh, using your store as a fulfillment center, you're improving the profitability. And I think for most non-essential items you need, that works out for a lot of consumers. That's awesome. Uh, good, good intel. And so, you know, I want to move Jim to the department stores. Um, you know, that hasn't been a volatile marketplace, huh? Um, no, not at all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we had some, we had Nordstrom closing stores. We had JC Penney and the filing and we had, um, you know, Macy's announcing store closings and, you know, Sears was stage stores, stage stores, Sears. And we had, you know, all, all this, you know, uh, turmoil, what's going on. What, and, and what's the, the future outlook here on department stores? I think, well, I think part of it is, you know, COVID kind of condensed everything and, and pressure everything. So changes that are probably going to happen over five or six years are happening over five or six months. So I, I think, you know, department stores had a, sh- had a shrink. There were too many stores, um, you know, struggling to remain relevant, losing market share to uh, fast fashion, um, off price, especially, uh, the, you know, they, they've been making some changes merchandising wise, um, as far as getting uh, merchandise to the stores quicker, you know, uh, speeding up their supply chain, um, and things like that. Um, I, I, I don't think they're going away. I mean, Lord and Taylor will be the next uh, domino to fall, but I, I think the chains in place now, um, possible exception of Belk because, uh, of, you know, they're, they're an LBO and they have a lot of debt. Um, but I, I think we're going to see, um, you know, smaller, a little more nimble department stores um, post-COVID. Um, and, you know, I, I think the ones that are out there now survive. Uh, just, you know, a smaller, smaller chains. What does the product mix of a department store look like in 2021? Um, I think it's going to be um, less apparel, you know, just like malls, they over relied on apparel. So they became giant apparel stores, accessory stores. So I think you're going to see more home, more beauty um, and, and less reliance on uh, maybe more, more footwear, less reliance on apparel. So the mer- merchandise mix will be tweaked a little bit. Got it. Coles and Macy's. And so, you know, what do you think happens, you know, with JCPenney, this iconic brand and, you know, now where they are today and, you know, do they come out of this stronger? What, what, what happens? Yeah, it's still, you know, it's still probably 50, 50, whether, whether they're going to be able to emerge from bankruptcy or not. Um, there's some push from some of the secured creditors um, to liquidate it fairly quickly you know, for them to get a big return on, on the buck. It seems from the early rulings, um, the judge looks like he wants it to continue as a going concern. And, you know, he, he may push it in that direction. I don't think he wants a 108 year old business employing about 100,000 people to go away. Um, and I, I do think um, they were moving in the right direction. Um, you know, obviously needed to close some stores, which they're doing now. Um, but I think they finally had a merchant in place and they had some good ideas. They seem to have a pretty good management team in place. Um, so, you know, if, if they're able to come out, um, I, I think there's room for JC Penny. I think they, they can be relevant to a certain middle-class segment, you know, um, bigger in the Latino market also. So um, if, if they can, you know, maneuver, make the financial maneuvers and come to an agreement with uh, the secured debt, um, I do think a smaller pennies could survive. And I, I think a lot of mall owners don't want them to go away. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I was wondering is, you know, and you mentioned Van Heusen earlier, you know, what happens to these brands that are reliant on department stores as a channel to sell their goods, whether it's Nordstrom, whether it's JCPenney Macy's, do they, does that, 
does that force them to start to open their own stores? Does that force them to go into different retailers? Or are you going to start to see brands that never were in an off price now in an off price? Do they start to open stores? What happens to some of these brands? Probably all of the above. Um, so yeah, I think they'll diversify their uh, distribution channels a little bit. I think they'll move to open more stores, although in you know in many cases it, that's not their their field of expertise. It doesn't always work out that well. Um, but you know they'll have to if departments are shrink or you know most of them go away. You know they're going to have to figure something out because that's that's their main outlet. Uh, some of these some of these big brands like that. Um. So so, Michael, one of the you know we heard a lot about grocery through uh, COVID nineteen and the increased sales of grocery. What I didn't hear a ton about was the the drugstores. And, and, you know, what's going on with the, the drugstores and, and what happens to drugstores on the go forward? What do they look like? Well, what happened was they, they for the most part, saw a surge in demand, um, some panic buying in the front end. So you couldn't get your toilet paper at Stop and Shop. So you went to CVS and Walgreens. Um, and then in the back end, in the pharmacy side of the business, there was a pull forward of medications. If, if you recall, even before this with the trade um, tensions with China, there was concern about the pharmaceutical drug supply. Um, the majority of the raw ingredients used for most of our pharmaceuticals are sourced from China and then manufactured in China or other countries abroad. So most of our drugs were shipping in from other countries. Um, so that was a pull forward. If you had a chronic met, uh, disease you're dealing with and maintenance me medication, you were pull for, pulling forward your scripts. Rather than th every 30 days, you did a 90-day script in March. So they saw a big surge in demand in March. That kind of leveled off coming in, going into April and May. And so they're starting to now catch up. Um, I expect it to kind of plateau and, and kind of return to normal times now in June as we kind of got through that period. The bigger trend is, and I think this is mostly favorable, is that all the, the retail drugs, the three big chains, Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid, had been shifting their strategy from a point of convenience that, you know, your, your corner drugstore, you come in, you get, a, you know, your, your gum and a prescription and maybe, a, you know, a few sundry items um, to one of a healthcare, a healthcare company. Um, and I think at the front of this and the, the one best positioned, at least initially, is CVS which with its acquisition of Aetna just over a year ago um, is, is a fully vertically integrated healthcare company. Yeah. That, that, that was fascinating. You know, they, they, they're now on the channel end to end really fascinating. Right. right. So they're insurer. They even have some provider care facilities, um, their pharmacy benefit manager, which manages the whole claim process and they're, they're the retail retailer as well. So they, they, they're looking at themselves as the front door of healthcare. And that's going to create a lot of efficiencies in terms of managing from the insured um, data all the way down to the patient when they get their prescription filled. We all know it's, it's kind of a antiquated and confusing system that throughout that whole kind of supply chain. Um, so their, their big push was this health hub format that they were starting to roll out. Um, adding more pharmacy type services, adding more healthcare services. So very similar to a lot of these 24 hour care clinics, they wanted to be staffed with a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant and deal with a lot of the, the more minor types of healthcare concerns, whether you have the flu or just needed a quick stitch or something like that, or even just doing basic testing. So they're going to start to see a, a big surge, particularly as we get to the test, we continue the testing phase. CVS has already rolled out over a, a thousand testing facilities for COVID-19. Then ultimately, once we do get to the vaccine phase, they're going to be very ready for that part of the business as well to kind of jump in there at that point. Um, so this shift in strategy has been pretty appropriate. And I think they're all pretty well positioned for that. And again, I think CVS is really ahead of the game uh, from that perspective. 
And then you have the overall general trends that we've already been seeing in just an aging population and the increased use of pharmaceuticals as a form of healthcare. Um, and if you look at healthcare spending, um, pharmaceuticals is, is only about 10 to 15% of the total healthcare spending. So it's the cheapest form of healthcare spending. It keeps your overall healthcare spending down if you stay on your meds. Um, if you go off your meds, you end up in an emergency room and that's the most expensive form of healthcare. So all these trends are very favorable in terms of the growth side. The negative thing, end of it has been the, the margin side in terms of lower reimbursement rates for pharmaceuticals. Um, a lot of headlines in recent years with um, the EpiPen being, you know, kind of the headline um, case uh, in terms of the kind of the runaway pricing in terms of inflation for a lot of the branded types of pharmaceuticals out there. The reality is prescription drugs in the aggregate have only been increasing 1% to 3% a year in the last couple of years. A big reason for that has been the shift from brand to generic drugs. Um, that's really helped keep the price of drugs lower. Uh, it was also much more profitable for a lot of the drug retailers. So that's been the focus of third-party payers, the government and insurers in terms of pushing down that reimbursement rate for those generic drugs. So I think they're all pretty well positioned. There's been kind of a bumpy road the last couple of months, first a surge, now kind of a trough and, and starting to level back off to more normalized volumes. Got it. Fascinating. Um, the do, do you think um, that the footprint of drugstores in the in the U.S. is appropriate? Uh, is it too much? Or given the new trends, you know, where you know maybe there's some optimization, but we are in a, you know it's an appropriate footprint. It seems to be an appropriate footprint. I mean, there's been some consolidation. Obviously, Walgreens picked up a little bit less than the half of the Rite Aid business and then announced they were closing several hundred of those locations as they consolidated them, uh, that footprint. And it was more aggressive than I, than I guess we initially thought. So that kind of points to maybe it wasn't such a great deal for Walgreens. But that, for the most part, has been behind us. Um, CVS has also closed a few stores, but in the aggregate is still adding locations. Um, I think we're probably at a stable point in terms of the retail footprint. They are still opening stores and continue to close a few as well. Um, and again, CVS is on a net positive uh, store count uh, movement. Rite Aid is more or less flat. And I think Walgreens now is kind of leveling off as well. Got it. Um, Seema, so you cover home furnishings and yeah. being uh, working remotely at home furnishings are becoming near and dear to my heart. And I know they're near and dear to a lot of Americans out there. Uh, what's going on in the home furnishings world? Sure. So I would say broadly speaking, uh, home, the focus on the home has really increased as people are staying home. So you're seeing that uh, in the home furnishings and decor sector. And also I would say to some extent in the home improvement sector, uh, if you want to start the home improvement sector, because people are at home, um, and having to work, live, and teach their children at home, they're really noticing their surroundings. And so in many cases, you're seeing uh, an increased spend on projects inside the home and outside the home, typically do-it-yourself projects, uh, as people didn't want outsiders to come in because of COVID. Uh, so that's been a, a plus, I would say, for the home improvement retailers, other than the fact that two-thirds of their sales are from uh, essential, necessary uh break and fix type of situation inside the home and home decor you, again as people had to move to work at home and teach their kids there was a surge i think in sales of office products desks um, and other type of merchandise in that sense but more so as we've gone on and people are actively at home and the the time at home is increasing people are spending more i think on the home decor side and you're seeing that strength uh, if you look at somebody like Wayfair, whose online sales have been uh, extremely high, I think in the quarter to date, they were almost 90%. Uh, the company said Bed Bath & Beyond also had very strong online sales uh, in the month of April, nearly 85%. And that's as people are working to you know, decorate their homes, but also to spend on small appliances and other things as they get back um, and just enjoying being in their homes. So you're definitely seeing a strength. But, you know, that's not true for all of the retailers. It, again, matters on the services you provide, 
the product selection and how relevant you are to the consumer in terms of uh, stylistically, but also what you represent, right? Something that's really important now is being socially conscious. And you see that with someone like West Elm, which is owned by William Sonoma, that's really helped them gain share with millennials and Gen Z uh, because they're socially conscious. So I think having a brand message, uh, you become top of mind when people are then focused on this category. And I think for some of the mass players, um, home has also been very strong. So just being at home, you want to make your environment a little bit better. So you spoke about one that I'm always fascinated by, which is Wayfair. And I don't know mm-hmm. today, I didn't look them up. Are they profitable yet? Is Wayfair making money? So no, on an EBITDA basis, they are not making money. Now, a year ago, they would have said that if they had stopped investing in their supply chain and international growth, they were positive and their U.S. segment would be positive on an EBIT, adjusted EBITDA basis, excluding that investment. But given that they continue to invest in growing internationally, which is Canada, Germany, and the UK, and developing their supply chain in the US, uh, they continue not to be uh, profitable. But I think part of their investment in their supply chain has really helped them during this period where uh, supply chain and logistics has been very important because they had invested and they had the most uh, highly sought after products in their warehouses already, they were able to still continue to have next day delivery and they didn't have that delay that many other retailers had. But uh, I think their goal is more about gaining market share and mind share um, and continue to build up that globally uh, versus being profitable at this point. How stable is this unprofitable nature that they keep running? I know it's investment and they're continuing to invest in the business, but at some point right. you have to generate free cash, no? Agreed. And so I think what happens at least in this type of space where it's all about market share and mind share is you have those companies that take the lead in a particular category. So you could say Wayfair, you could say Warby Parker, or Amazon generally, and they are typically allowed to buy the street, meaning Wall Street and investors to take that time to invest and perhaps pull back on their profitability uh, that allows them to get further ahead. It's not a sustainable model indefinitely, but in the near term, when it's all about gaining market share and mind share, I think they're given uh, that leeway that many other retailers are not. And that's sort of been my case about why Amazon was so such a tough competitor for many of the existing retailers. It's not that it's that because they were always able to invest and sort of act irrationally, if you could say that from an economic point of view, whereas other retailers were not, were punished by the street for taking the time to invest in marketing and technology because it was margin, uh, caused margin pressure. So I think it's not a sustainable model, but certain companies are sort of given that. Uh, opportunity to get ahead and get that mind share that many brick, you know, legacy retailers are not, and the smaller online players are not able to get that leeway. That makes sense. Yeah. So can you educate the audience when you say mind share, what do you mean? I'm talking about uh, coming to the top of a consumer's mind when they're looking for a category. So it's been said that about 30% of retail starts at Amazon. So they have that mind share that if you're just going particularly for a commodity type of product and you're a prime member, you start at that website and then you may go on and search. So having that mind share to the extent, like I need a new fridge, first thing you're gonna go look at is, okay, Home Depot sells appliances. So they come to mind. And I think in Wayfair's case, they're building up with their multiple brands, that mind share with the younger consumer that when you need to get some sort of furnishings or decor for your home, that's the place that you might look uh, to start out with, particularly online. So I think it's, it's about being relevant, particularly to the millennials and the younger generation who are going to be the largest spenders now that Gen X and baby boomers are sort of aging out. Do they, you mentioned 30% for Amazon. Do, do they, are there metrics available to find out how much mind share certain retailers have? Is it out there? Um, it's hard to, you know, people look at different things like sensor tower data, which shows how much an app has been downloaded or Google trends to see how much the name of a brand or uh, is being hit on the internet. So it's hard to particularly get that um, as an outsider, but also companies will tell you when they do their research, they have uh, unaided and aided brand awareness. So sometimes you get those stats, but it's 
hard from an outside perspective to get that um, without certain metrics like that or, you know, online scraping that can tell you how many times uh, something was hit. But you could also, there are sort of, like in a mosaic, you could look at Instagram, see their Facebook page, see their Twitter page, and you can kind of get a sense of consumers' reaction to that brand and how many followers they have. So it's not scientific, but it's sort of a way to gauge one brand versus the other. Got it. All right. So uh, that was all fascinating. We're, 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 we are running short on time and I want to be uh, conscious of uh, all your schedules. So I've got uh, a, a few, I, I've got one more question and then we'll pivot to what I call retail wisdom. Um, what question in each one of you, what question are you dying to have answered? What, what question about retail right now, your sector in retail is really burning on your minds that you all are looking to have answered and you're very curious about. And, and Jim, we'll start with you. Right now is, I guess for me, what kind of comfort level are, are people absent a, uh, a vaccine, what kind of comfort level are people going to have going back into stores? Got it. Makes sense. Which we haven't seen. We've seen some evidence, but you know, the jury's not out yet. Yep. Michael, what what's what questions burning for you? I think for for both grocery and drug, it has more to do with the supply chain. What lessons are we going to learn from this in terms of managing these essential ingredients and products that we we use, need, and require every day? Um, in particular, the pharmaceutical channels. Will we? bring more of this manufacturing back into the United States. With the grocery space, there's been a lot of consolidation. We see a lot of the headlines about the meat processing facilities closing down. Um, a lot of that mergers and acquisitions, we, we really tightened this whole supply chain. So when you have a supply chain that's that tight, any bit of stress and the thing snaps. And that's what we're seeing. Um, we didn't really see it with the pharmaceuticals, but we could. Um, so will we learn these lessons and find ways of bringing this back into the United States? I think the problem with that, obviously, though, is um, it's going to be more costly. Um, and obviously, we're all very afraid of inflation and rising costs. Uh, great perspective. And, and Seema, what, what, uh, what questions burning on your mind? Uh, to me, really, at the end of the day, it's about the consumer. They drive the economy. They are the customer. And so I really would love it sort of piggybacks off what Jim's question is like, where are they? If I could get the details as to really how comfortable and strong the consumer is and where, and do they have that? Do they feel like shopping? Cause we're getting into back to school on holiday and it's the key period. And so it, it's just like how comfortable they do they feel with their financials to go out and spend? Cause that's really, what it's about at the end of the day, either online or in store. And so I just don't feel like we have a full uh, understanding of where the consumer is and, and what they're going to be spending on. If it's just going to be focused on essentials or discretionary. What's your guess? Where do they spend? Seema? My guess it'll continue to be on essentials and you'll still see some. I think they will start to spend somewhat on discretionary because you're seeing that, but I don't know what their capacity is to continue to help the economy grow at the pace that it had been growing. And so I'm not sure if that's being baked into what people are assuming, like even it, until there is a vaccine, people might not be comfortable going out, but even if there is a vaccine, are the jobs going to come back? Are people going to have the capacity to spend? I think they will do some on credit that will, but not maybe to the extent that many retailers might need or the broader economy. All right. Well, that was fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we're going to pivot to uh, what I call retail wisdom. And so I have two, two questions um, uh, for you all individually. Uh, uh, you can individually answer. So question one, extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Jim, you're up. Okay, uh, I'll go back a while. I was always fascinated with this company, and I'd, I'd like to see what they do with current technology, and that's service merchandise, if you remember them. Totally. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Michael. Um, I, I 
it's a tough question because most of these companies fail for a good reason. <laughs> but um, I, I guess one company that stands out was Sports Authority, particularly the Gart Sports banner. I, I was always a fan of Gart Sports when I lived in the Denver area. Um, and I thought it was a shame when, you know, when they did file. Primarily, they were a casualty of a, a leverage buyout, very unnecessary leverage buyout. Um, uh, so that would probably be the one I would like to see come back. Seema. I would agree that it's a pretty much a very tough question because you sort of adapt to what's out there. But I think from an apparel standpoint for me, for like where to work and comfortable, there was this old company that was owned by the limited brands called Learner. It was in the mall, but they had a lot of clothes that were at a good price, a good value, and that certainly fit my size and were good for where to work. So I, <laughs> that would be something that would be nice if it came back, if we start going back to the office, but it was a long time ago. I remember them for sure. All right. So last question. So uh, I've been working from home remotely and um, I, I'm in my basement, as you guys can see from about seven to seven. And uh, next week I will be down at the, the New Jersey shore working from there. Uh, still working, uh, but giving my family a, a change of scenery and um, there's a pool and so I need, needed a new bathing suit. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I've been looking at a bunch um, and I am currently on Tommy Bahama's website right now. And I am looking at the Baja Hibiscus row eight inch board shorts. What do they retail for on Tommy Bahama's website? Jim, you're up. <laughs> well, Tommy Bahama's not cheap. Um... I'm going to go uh, $34.99. $34.99. Michael? I'm going to go a little bit higher, Jim. Uh, uh, $99.99. And Seema? Um, I, I would, am I going to end up in the middle? I think it's about $75 to $85. All right. Well, Michael, you were like just about spot on. They retail for $99.50, but thank you for playing, everybody. <laughs> size large. Well, um, uh, listen, everybody, this was fascinating. Thank you for being my first uh, multi-person podcast. We've done 35-plus uh, episodes since uh, last fall, and this is the first multi-guest podcast, and so – Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. If there's anything I can do for you, any questions you have from the real estate side, don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.